everybody, welcome back to the 45th episode of Taps and Patience. I am AJ with Designing Everything here with Harrison of Precision Ingenuity, and we have Benjamin of Black Box Machining. Uh, hi, everybody. How are you doing? Doing good. I seriously considered opening with the Within Tolerance intro because, like, we've had two guests in a row, and I think we've had a total of four guests. So we're on quite the uh, interview streak at the moment. Yeah, I like having guests on. <laughs> I do too. We should do it more. We should. <clears throat> so, so, Benjamin. Yeah. Sorry, I, I jumped in there a minute. <laughs> yeah, we um, do that a lot more when there's three of us. It is. We got to get we got to get a rhythm down. That's always the hard part about having multiple people. But why don't you why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, uh, basically, I run uh, a small little side hustle in my garage here. I've got about a 900 square foot area with uh, a CNC machine I built and also a sile. And we will, we'll jump into that. But yeah, I just kind of make all sorts of stuff. Um, knives uh, are kind of my main thing, just stuff that I want to have. So I started making wallets a long time ago. I called them the Atlas wallet and I made them on a CNC router that I had built and designed by myself. Um, but it had no tool changer. So I learned very quickly how difficult it is to make a product uh, and to be financially stable with a product when you're the one changing out seven bits for one, one part. So, uh, but yeah, Black Fox Machining is my Instagram. I just started uh, messing around with YouTube. I don't know where that's going to go. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I, I think the, the most fun thing about... Um, is just like the community in general. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but uh, the Insta Machinist community, I guess you could call it, has just been so fun to like learn, uh, get to know you guys and uh, and everybody else. That's actually how I got this machine. So super, super fun stuff. So what sort of equipment are you running now? Uh, basically the sile. <laughs> so ever since, ever since I picked up the, the sile machine, um, I, I wanted to basically have two spindles running all the time, but my homemade machine, it's just after running the sile, it's really hard to want to go back and run it because it's slow. It breaks down and I, I build it so I can, you know, I can, I can dog on it all I want. Um, and then I also have my CNC router, which I just uh, used actually last night. I had a buddy come over. We built uh, a pedal board for his uh, guitar rig. So that was fun. Um, but on a regular basis, it's the style. That's awesome. Yep. yep. So. So um, <clears throat> this machine you built, um, how long did it take you? About what are it what's it's like horsepower and kind of some of its speeds and feeds uh just to kind of get an idea of what it's like compared to your 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 style just out of curiosity yeah um so the the cnc mill was basically born from having like built the cnc router and realizing that is not capable of machining like anything more than like aluminum so i wanted to build basically a tormach for as cheap as possible and make it very rigid. Uh, I wanted to have a tool changer, so I ended up putting a BT30 spindle on it. 
And that was a spindle cartridge that I paired with a, I think it was a two horsepower uh, induction motor. So that was a three phase induction motor that I had to use a VFD to, to power. And then I went and used clear path motors, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. I even feel like Tormach uses clear path servos, if that's correct. Uh, so I got those through work. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they're, they're they are nice. awesome. I, mm -hmm. I really, really like them. Uh, the auto-tune feature, just a way to set them up. So, um, let's see. Yeah, basically, I, I got a lot of stuff through work. Uh, I learned how to weld on that machine, and I filled it with epoxy granite. Uh, just everything I could think about doing that I've seen other people do on CNC machines, I tried to put in this one. The only thing that it was missing, which is huge, is flood coolant and a proper enclosure. And when you don't have flood coolant or a proper enclosure, it doesn't really matter how great your machine is. You're not going to be able to cut certain materials. And that was such like that was such a sticking point for that machine. Um, but I built a 18, yeah, 18 holder um, ATC, so a, a tool carousel. I had to understand how to figure out what you know macros are and uh, kind of build that out. That was really fun. Figure out how to position the spindle and get it to orient every single time. I went to change a tool. So dropped a lot of tools, uh, messed up a lot of holders. I, th I 3D printed the little uh, claws. And uh, I don't recommend 3D printing the claws because they're not very strong. Um, but yeah, I, extremely good machine <laughs> for, for what it did. And I was able to make countless knives on it make all of my money back on it um you know i used uh, double nut ball screws uh high wind linear rail that were all 25 millimeter my previous job i worked as a mechanical engineer at a water jet company and so we manufactured custom water jet machines okay. and tailored them to anybody so you can imagine like a custom shop is going to have a lot of parts laying around because they're like, well, this was like a one-off build. And then they would like throw out linear rail. They would throw out ball screws. Mm -hmm. They would throw out motors. It was a gold mine for engineers. And uh, it was so fun because the guys I worked with awesome. all built CNC machines. So we were all kind of in the same, like, they called us like vultures at work. They're just like, uh, yeah, well, the engineers are going to grab all this, all this stuff. So. Um, so that's how I built that machine, and I'm very, I am proud of it. It's sitting back there. I used my wife's Cricut, uh, and I call it the NOS VF No. So that's like a nod to the Haas VF1. But, yeah. Yep. yep. That's awesome. I, I, I would, you should be very proud of that. It's, I've often toyed with the ideas of making a machine and then uh, talk myself out of it because it's just the amount of work and effort and dedication it would take. That's, that's impressive. So regardless of how it, how it machines, how it compares to newer machines, um, the, the work and the time that you spent to make that um, one, you're going to know stuff that's most, most people probably won't, which is impressive. Um, but two, it's just, it's just, it's an awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And, and then you turn around and start making money with it. I mean, I mean, that's, my hat's off to you for that. That's thank that's you. Awesome. Yeah, I have had a lot of DMs. All right, and so let's oh. talk about the uh, the size. Okay. Uh, 
Sorry, I think there's a lot of lag between us right now, so we may talk over. Yeah, that's totally fine. I was just gonna say I've had a lot of DMs asking, yeah, should I build a machine? Should I buy one? And basically, what it comes down to is, do you have a ton of time and a lot of like headache capacity? And do you want to like make money or do you want to like have a project? And I learned that really quickly. That's why my next machine was going to be something I bought. So yeah, we can talk about the style now. I think that's a great transition. So the yeah the style. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> let's talk. Go ahead. <laughs> there is a lot of leg. Or there there is. <laughs> Okay, all right. I'll talk about the style. Do we need to do, do we need to do like the clap thing? I was waiting for you guys to talk. That's so funny. Um, as long as we're quiet, the uh, as yeah. long as the as long as we're quiet, Zencaster will edit it out though, so that works. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ben, talk about okay. the style. So the style uh, behind me here that was it was basically a machine that I've been saving up for a very long time after building my homemade machine. The reason I built a homemade machine was to be able to save up enough money to buy either a Haas, um, probably not a Tormach, because the machine that I had built, other than it not having flood coolant, was very similar to a Tormach. After filling it with epoxy granite, the thing was over 1,000 pounds. It was a very rigid machine. Um, so I was between basically a Haas, a Sile, uh, maybe an old Fidal, uh, everybody kind of goes down that rabbit hole where they're like, oh, I'll just buy like a cheap old machine and like retrofit the heck out of it and put new parts on it and just hope everything works. And that didn't make me feel that comfortable because I wanted to make money off of it. Um, so yeah, I'd been saving up for the Style X7 and a buddy of mine on Instagram, you guys might know him, uh, Sean and James uh, Serven, I think is how you say their last name. They reached out to me, and I think it was probably about six months ago. He said, hey, I know that you really like the X7, and I even mentioned, I think I was to him that I was saving up for one. And he said, we actually might be getting rid of it soon. Is that something that you're interested in? And I was just like, whoa, this is amazing, because I had another at least two years of like saving and I was like, well, there's no way I can afford this. And the short of it basically is he gave me an incredible deal. He had a machine coming in, uh, a robo drill, his second robo drill. So he's, he's doing incredible, incredibly well. Uh, he had a robo drill coming in, needed the space, and uh, we worked it all out. I'm in Ohio. He's in New York. Um, I wired a bunch of money over to him. It failed like three times. The company... This is, this is wild. The company that rigged it, um, basically, they didn't strap it down. They, they did one strap over top, but they didn't, like, bolt it down. And because this was my baby and a lot of money, uh, I sent them an engineering drawing that I created in Fusion with, like, all the leg points that, like, it sh how it should be bolted down to the pallet, everything. And they're like, yeah, we're the rigging company. Don't worry about it. So they didn't care at all. And they thought that I was James because we went through like, you know, he did all of the arrangement and everything. And 
it was a really messy situation. Um, and it got to my house in one piece. It was not upside down, uh, which was a good thing. And then uh, just the other thing you can't make up is I hired a rigger. And in front of my shop, I have non-compacted gravel. And this is like a 5,000-pound machine. He brought an 18,000-pound forklift with a rollback. So like one of those uh, large trucks with like the, the rollback uh, back into it rolled the forklift off and immediately got stuck because uh, it's like an 18,000 pound forklift. Oh, no. And uh, he could not get that thing to budge at all. The, the shipper from like New York was just standing there for like a half an hour. Like, is this ever going to, you know, is this guy ever going to get out of these rocks? So I have a video of it and I posted this to my uh, YouTube. It was very terrifying, but he used the rollback got as close as he could to the truck and there was a good four or five inches of gap from the box truck and the rollback and maybe like 10 feet of unsupported with like the hydraulic here. And he takes a, a, a chain hoist and we hoist it off of the box truck onto the rollback. It was so terrifying. It's suspended like, I don't know, like six feet in the air. My wife and kids are behind me. You can just see my wife with like big eyes and I'm like freaking out. Um, so it was a very terrifying thing. And then once we got it off of that, because we had no forklift, we had it on the rollback. We had to move the truck, get it close to the forklift, put the forklift up, get it on the forklift, move the truck out of the way. It took like well over four hours and we got it down the ground and we used the truck to push the forklift with the machine in my gravel to my shop door. It was wild i would i would not recommend it at all um my guy the the guy i hired he felt so bad because he's like oh i thought these would have been compacted i'm like no like hardly anybody's ever driven on them um so it took like i think it was a solid four hours because i had taken work off and um i didn't think it would take that long but we got in here safe and sound and i ended up buying a machine that i had no power for so then i had to figure out uh, power. There was 20 amps out here that I was running this this old machine on. So if I turned a vacuum on and like one other thing while the machine was running, lose all my power. So I had to figure out how to trench 100 amps out here. So it, it's really been like a huge learning process um, and an expensive one too, uh, because of all the added you know costs of just getting a machine. And if anybody's ever like looking at you know, buying, uh, whether it's an X7 or any sort of CNC mill, you really got to take into account, um, like shipping, rigging, power requirements, air requirements. Uh, so those are all kind of like the hidden things that you might not think about. Um, I definitely thought about them, but it was not fun to pay them. Let's just say that I had a little Excel spreadsheet that I'm like, okay, this is how much it's going to be. And the machine now is like way more expensive than what I wanted to pay. Um, but it's here, it's making great parts and I've been making molds on it. I don't have any of the molds. Um, but basically the leftover that I had to pull from savings on it, I've already made up from making molds and selling knives. So I'm, I, it was definitely nice. a, a very good investment and I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with <clears throat> it. So that was super long. Uh, but yeah, when you, when you say making. 
when you say making molds, do you want to go into that a little bit? Because I'm not sure what you mean. Are you making like injection molds? Like, do you have a uh, an injection mold machine? Or are you making them for someone else? Yeah, basically, it's just it's very it's as simple as you can get with a mold. Um, it's basically a piece of aluminum, and it's got a cavity. And right now, some of them are fishing lure molds, and so they're pouring like a molten plastic in there, and then it it creates just like a flat on the top. <clears throat> I also did a few molds for a friend uh, that were like rubber molds, and they were also still one-sided machined uh, cavity. So then he just presses the rubber in there. Uh, really simple jobs, but great jobs for the for gotcha. the style. So that, that's awesome. So you're a, a product-based. Uh, so this is a side hustle for you, um, correct? And your your main product that you're doing is a uh, a utility knife. Yeah, that's correct. I yeah, is that correct? I started with uh, making kind of a more premium uh, flipper knife, which you might be able to see. Uh, oh, actually, the right side of that page, at the very top, that would be like the the flip knife all the way to the top. Yep, there you go. That's the one that I actually have in my hand. And that's a little bit more premium. I can show you here. That's actually easier to watch the video. But it has a, a G10 backspacer, uh, a G10 blade holder with a magnetic lock detent. Um, so there's two magnets 180 degrees away from each other. So when you open it up, you can kind of hear that click. It locks into place. And because you're always kind of cutting uh, toward you and down, that pressure is always kind of keeping the the tool open. So, and there's also like these little holes here to put your your fingers in, so it won't collapse on you, or it shouldn't. Um, so I made those out of G10 and brass because my machine that I built has no flood coolant. And aluminum is basically the easiest thing you could ever machine. But you have to have like flood coolant or some sort of cooling. So I, I did a lot of composites on the machine I built. And I think I will continue to do composites on it like G10, micarta, uh, carbon fiber. Because I don't ever want to run those on my flood coolant machine. So I think that's, that's where it will be really nice to have two machines. Um, but yeah, that, that's my flipper. Um, and these were really fun to make, but they do take a long time and they are a little expensive. I don't sell them currently, but the most recent one that I came up with is a pretty simple, I call it the slide. And basically it's just a piece of aluminum with, uh, some slots here mm -hmm. and also a magnetic, uh, lock bar. So I don't know if you can see that very well, but basically the detent is held in place mm -hmm. with a magnet, so it acts like a spring. Yeah, and in this video, you can see it pretty well. Uh, that's actually a titanium lock bar that I made. So I've been having a lot of fun with those, and I've been making those entirely on the, on the style machine. And my process is to basically take a piece of bar stock about seven and a half inches by inch and a quarter, and I can get two full... Uh, bodies mm -hmm. out of it and these machine in I would say about eight minutes for this first stop 
And when I was making them on my homemade machine, this right here, and it's not even as pretty, uh, the service finishes uh, to be desired, but these took like 15 to 20 minutes for that op. So you can see how going to the sile with more horsepower, uh, having the flood coolant has really just upped my game. In fact, mm -hmm. it used to take me 10, or sorry, it used to take me a month to make about 10 of these slides. And when I first got the sile, in two days, I had like, I think I had like 15 made. I was just like having so much fun. But it was just like such a reliable um, in yeah, such a reliable and precise machine that every time uh, I pulled a part off and I checked it and like made sure that the blade fit, it just fit every single time. So there's that that was like a huge thing. Just process reliability has increased like tenfold. What do you think about the controller on the style? How has that been to uh, learn? Yeah, so I have the LNC controller, which, as I understand, I believe it's a Chinese controller, um, and there's there's no real U.S. support for it, and that's that's what Surven Solutions got. So to, to help you understand a little bit better, I have a single phase style X7, uh, which basically lets me run it off of 220 single phase. It's rated now for four horsepower. Don't quote me on all this, uh, but basically you have to derate it because you're on single phase. And the other machines, you can get different controllers. I believe the Syntec 22MA is the like US-based uh, controller, and that is a three-phase machine. But you don't have to have three-phase power. You just need some way of converting single phase to three-phase, which would be like a phase converter, which I believe those machines ship with... Uh, a phase converter, ro rotary, or maybe a digital phase converter. Um, but you can get Siemens and a five-axis module uh, for, like, the Trunnion work, and then the Syntec. So I have the LNC. It is definitely a learning – there's definitely a learning curve. But I have to say, uh, James and Sean, they, like, made a Google Doc when we were, like, talking back and forth they like made a Google doc of like step-by-step -step how to turn the machine on, how to do like everything on it, tool changes, tool set, uh, just they were incredible. And then they're like, hey, when you first get it turned on, like just call us and we can like play on it for a couple hours and help you understand. So uh, it really wasn't as difficult as uh, it could have been, but not having their support I think would have been a little tricky. I know that the uh, Tormach, uses Pathpilot, and that's, like, a really nice, like, layout, like a GUI and all that. The LNC has a lot of features, and it has a lot of industrial features, but if you don't know how to get to them, it's, like, it's, like, useless, you know? So it's just a lot of, like, playing around with it, running it super slow, because it's not fun to crash a 5,000-pound machine. Um, but basically, it has all the features that I would want. I use... Uh, Haas VF2s, VF3s, VF4s at work. As an engineer, we kind of have our own CNC mill for prototyping. And I've had to learn that control in and out to be able to do hand programming, conversational, uh, running probes. And all of the features on a Haas, I can basically find on my LNC controller. It just maybe takes a little bit longer, 
and there might be a couple more button presses. I think that's the best way I can explain it. That's good. Do you have the uh, probing package and tool setter? I don't. I don't have a probe. And do you use it? Uh, I have the tool setter, which is I'm. I love it. I don't. I don't think I. I would ever buy a machine without a tool setter. That's. That's just so handy. Um, and then Servent Solutions. Uh, they actually gave me a Heimer, and I didn't know if I would like it. It's. It's really nice. Before I didn't have any probing, and I would just. Uh, you guys are going to like make fun of me. Um, but basically I would just take a V bit and like lower it down with like the paper method. And I did that for all of my stuff. And because I was doing fixture work uh, for mm-hmm. all these knives, I had like a little fixture set up. My G54, 55, all that were in the same place. So like it didn't really change. It was just like Z heights and stuff like that, that I had to to mess with, but highly recommend a tool setter. And I think, I eventually want to get a probe and because I've had a lot of experience with doing DIY machines, like adding a probe to the LNC controller, like it doesn't, it doesn't scare me at all. Um, plus one more thing to say, there is an incredible community around these machines, the Sile X7, Sile in general. They have an X5, which is a little bit smaller, way faster. It's a really cool machine. Go check it out. They have an X9 and an X11. The X11s may be more comparable to a VF2. And uh, there's a great community on Facebook. Uh, it's a closed group, but anybody can really join. And it's the Sile Facebook page. And everybody is, like, happy to help. They don't, like, make you feel stupid, which is great. <laughs> so. That's awesome. Hey, AJ, you want to talk a little bit about your probe? Because we kind of we kind of talked about the probe and, and or the tool setter, which is definitely awesome. Um, I don't think, AJ, have you always had a probe on all your machines? All of my machines that were 1,100 sized or larger have had a probe. Okay. Uh, I guess I haven't had anything larger. So, yes, all of my machines that were 1,100s have had probes. I've had plenty of machines before that without probing. Uh, like okay. the Pocket NC, for example, my Sherlines, um, the router that I started with. I've had a couple of machines without probes, but yeah. I am all for probes now. Um, I recently just got a wireless probe for my machine upgrade from the, the wired Tormach one, and that has been huge. I've been using that constantly, um, and I'm making better parts for it, like notably better parts with the, with the new probe. So that's been really, really nice. Do you, want, do you want to talk about uh, what you're doing and why you needed it to be wireless and why that is making better parts? Well, obviously the reason for a wireless probe over a wired probe is you can put a wireless probe in your tool carousel. And therefore the machine can probe when you are not there. If you have a wired one, you have to manually, you have to manually load the probe every time, which really like realistically gets you 99% of the capability of a probe because most of the time you're just using it to set work coordinate systems. Um, but with the wireless probe, you can do things like stop halfway through the program and um, make adjustments to the position of your part. So, for example, I just ran um, some op ones on a pretty simple part. Those op ones have a top hat on them, 
and so it's very hard to locate the um, the precision machine features underneath the top hat for op two to get a good alignment on stuff like the champers. And so my program, it just, you know, using a very roughly set work coordinate system, it just decks off the top of the, the top hat and then it probes the precision machine features and then it goes back in and does my chamfer. So everything lines up just perfectly. And it's like you just, you can do that without a probe. You can do that by setting up a work stop and, you know, maybe you, it takes a part or two to dial in. Uh, but with a probe, it's just so much quicker and more accurate. It's all just automated. Um, and then also I have some parts that I make my carabiners. The thickness on those is not, um, let me phrase that. I do not machine off the top of those carabiners to get them to a consistent thickness because I found that due to internal stresses in the material, it was causing all kinds of mayhem with my parts when I faced off the top of them. Literally some of these carabiners were bending themselves up by like an inch inside my fixture. And so instead what I do to make sure that the, um, again, all of the chamfers and countersinks and everything's are uh, the right size is I will probe the thickness of each carabiner before I machine the features on it. Uh, at least for op two. For op one, I just machine or I just probe the sheet once. And it's been just a huge step forwards in process reliability. I, I really love it. Um, did you get your, your master program working? Yes and no. So I I wrote basically a palette manager program. Um, that's kind of overselling it. But uh, I have the palettes that I use on my machine. They just bolt down to my Saunders machine works table. They're not automated. They're not quick change or anything. But I can fit multiple palettes on the machine at the same time. Uh, depending on what size of palette, I can fit two, three, four on there. And I wanted to be able to mix and match which palettes I ran at any given time. So like, let's say I'm setting up a night run and I want to run, you know, off one of the carabiners and then um, the pry bars, I wanted to run those as well. You know, the programs for those are in different fusion files. You can't just easily, you know, stick them all into one uh, set of G code quickly and easily. So I wrote a palette manager that you can... It has a list of all of my programs in it and they're all commented out. And so if you want to choose what two programs you want, you just uncomment them on the control and hit cycle start and it'll do both of the, uh, the palettes. So that's been, that, that was um, nice in theory, but then I immediately broke my tool setter and oh, no. I use my tool setter for tool breakage detection on my long overnight runs. Um. And without that tool breakage detection, I haven't been comfortable running it overnight. So I haven't run it overnight at all for the past week. Um, so wait, is your is your wireless probe broke right now? Then no, my wireless probe is fine. I broke my tool setter. Oh oh oh, um, your your tool setter. Yeah yeah. The uh, it was so annoying. I it was a software bug that, that killed it. Um, I like. I don't know. I ran a program and there was a tool that needed a manual tool change. Uh, I realized that that tool was supposed to be in the ATC and I just hadn't like told the machine to put it in. And so I just, so it was halfway through the program. I hit, just hit the stop button on the controller so I could tell it to put it in the ATC. And instead of like, for whatever reason, the path pilot was just like, eh, I'm going to drop the tool. 
and it dropped the tool directly onto my tool setter. Oh no. For no apparent reason. Um, and that was the end of that. I tried to fix it, but I, by the time I got it taken apart, like I, there was nothing super obviously wrong. And, um, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't find out, couldn't figure out how to fix it. So I ordered a new one from Drew Ton- from Drewtronics, which is the same company that makes my wireless probe. And it just got here today. So I'll get that on tomorrow and then we can go back to running overnight. But yeah, that was a bummer just to hit cycle stop. And then, and then all of a sudden you lose your touch probe. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's, that's very frustrating. Um, your machine has dropped a couple tools. It does it occasionally. Um, I've never really figured out what the common denominator is. I don't know why it does it. I think, like I said, I think it's some bug, but I can't figure out how to recreate the bug. Yeah. Hmm. So speaking Weird. of machine catastrophes, uh, oh, ben, yeah. I saw a broken <laughs> yeah. window. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty terrifying experience, but I was running op two on a part with uh, pretty thin walls. I also had the vice tilted 90 degrees. So these are like a lot of things that you really shouldn't do. The funny part is I was running op two with a quarter inch end mill because I have thrown a part before with a face mill. And I was like, oh, I'll just run the quarter inch end mill. And I used the same feeds and speeds, which are very aggressive. It was like 200 inches a minute with like a 70 thou um, like radial step over. And when you're only holding on to an eighth of an inch on like, you know, each side of the part, because that's all it was. It was just like smooth draws. Everything went perfectly wrong. And in an instant, I heard a super loud noise. And I was standing right at the machine on the right side of the or uh, behind the right window, which is like where the uh, the control panel is. And I just hear this super loud sound. And I'm like, oh my goodness, did I like lose a tool? Did I throw the part? So then I see, oh, my machine's just still going, still got the end mill, a quarter inch end mill, just completely fine. But like no aluminum part anywhere to be found. And so I'm looking in the window and then I see, oh, this window has like all the spidering, you know, that you get when you like, break a windshield or something in a car so then i'm oh i need to open up the the door and see if i can find the part in the the machine and i look as i'm like opening up the door i look down and there's a massive hole uh i think if you like click to the next picture on that thing you might be able to see the the hole Uh, that might be when i was when i was tearing it apart but basically i have i have a post where you can see that hole and it was like four inches maybe three to four inches away from like where my side would have been <laughs> so had i been like standing i don't know just like even not even a foot over to the left that little aluminum part would have gone straight into me along with all that glass which i actually have glass um on this uh desk i've got little pieces right here still because it shot all that glass about 20 feet including the part the part got super damaged. Um, my window got completely destroyed. But after kind of stepping away from it, I was like, man, that could have been so bad. Um, and I normally have my son out here with me because he just loves to 
hang out with dad and press a button on the on daddy's machine. He calls it uh, the machine, and and it was right at like where his head height would be. So like I can't imagine the damage I would have gotten if it would have gotten in my stomach, but. I, it's just it's a little scary to think like man if he was in there so it happened at 11 p.m and i come in uh my wife is just sound asleep and so i wake her up in the morning i'm like hey i posted something on social media uh just a heads up this happened last night and she's like oh okay yeah whatever and then she texts me like a couple hours later <laughs> and she's like oh my gosh I just realized like what you told me. I'm like, yeah, it was pretty terrifying. So, uh, but basically I, d- I don't think they used like safety glass or like polycarbonate or I ended up right now. I'm in the process of replacing all of my windows, uh, on my own with uh, polycarbonate just because that's like shatter resistant, shatter proof. I mean, this was a very small piece of aluminum, maybe weighed about five ounces and it shot out like a bullet and it shattered a window like that should never really happen on a cnc machine i'll take full blame for having the the vice position in the incorrect way um although nobody told me that that was incorrect until i had a catastrophe uh but the only reason i did that was because of the travel the vice would have hit the door and then i would have had another broken window um but yeah everything everything's okay uh, my pride, you know, got hurt a little bit, but I was fine. It felt like somebody threw sand at me really hard. And then I realized, oh, that was glass like hitting me, but I'm, I'm fine too. Just, uh, uh, it makes you realize like, Hey, every machine is trying to kill me. And like, no matter how safe I think I am, I just like have to respect like what I'm doing. And that's why I'm replacing all these windows with polycarbonate, um, just so I know that it's safe. So I I posted it to the Facebook group and it, it kind of blew up a little bit. I was not trying to like create any sort of um, drama, uh, but I w- it was more of a PSA like, hey guys, this happened. Um, I can't be the only one that has shattered a window, but. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your story. I was just going to say when you when you get a second. Um, so just because you're changing that with polycarbonate, I will warn you um, that might not be enough depending on what goes wrong. So I don't know if I told the story on the podcast or not. Um, nope, I don't know what's coming here. Okay. So um, when my Haas lathe was dropped off and I was talking to the technician, um, whenever we were installing it, I had thrown a part and it was probably the hardest part I've ever thrown in my Tormach. And it didn't break anything. It didn't hurt anything. It did slightly dent the side of my machine though. Um, not anything big, like, you know, just like a small bump. Um, you wouldn't notice it unless you were looking for it. Um, but we were talking about it and he was telling me the story of, um, he he heard about it from another technician that he was working either he heard about it or he was on call to go to it um but there was a there was a shop that was running a Haas machine and they had made their own flywheel um or not flywheel uh fly cutter um and it was like 
eight inches in diameter because they had to make something custom. And it flew, and they, so it was in the tool holder. And what ended up happening was, um, it was a series. It was a series of events. Um, but what ended up happening, I believe, if I remember the story right, is that the cutter that was on that fly, that that the the fly cutter was a big like aluminum disc, and then they had bolted on a counterweight and then the cutter, and I don't remember if it was the counterweight or the cutter. But one of those came off the flywheel while it was up at speed. And it went through the machine, out the back of the machine. It went through a center block wall, uh, went through um, like a toolbox or two, went through another center block wall, or no, went through a bathroom, and then the center block wall on the other side of the bathroom, and then it stopped. I, but like, I think I've heard that from somebody else. Like, basically the same story. Yeah. So, it's, it's either a really popular story or actually happened. Yeah, it's... No, I saw yeah. the video. Like, he pulled up the video and showed me the aftermath of it I don't, on his phone. Man, I don't think and I think Poly, it's posted somewhere. Um, would do, like, if nothing's going to stop it, not even cinder blocks. But... but I mean, my polycarbonate is not going to stop. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. wild. Yeah, that's... No, I know. What I'm saying is, is people have done much dumber stuff. People have done much dumber stuff. And you're holding your holding your your uh, vice on ninety is a very common practice in in some yeah, things. I didn't, like I had, I had no idea that was a thing you weren't supposed to do. Yeah, I, I I don't think it's a thing you're not supposed to do because I think um I think there's even a Saunders video where he took his orange vices and they were too big for his Tormach. And so he turned them sideways so he could get dual stations on his uh, 1100. Uh, I think it was just the M or, or the Series 3 um, back in the day. And But when he first got his, his uh, vices, he would stick them on there sideways for a lot of his videos. So I don't think it's uh, it's there's anything wrong with it. Um, because like you said, even if it was on there, quote-unquote, the right way... Um, just would have yeah. gone out a side window instead of the front. Yeah. So, like, there's still windows on the sides of the machine. <laughs> no, I suppose that is the safer mode of failure. True. Just going out a side window. True. The safe, safer mode, but, I mean, my vice, with the one that hit the front of the machine, um, my vice was still in there the quote-unquote correct way. So it all depends on how your tool catches. Because, like, especially if you're, like, doing an adaptive, that's what caused mine to throw. Wherever your tool's at in the adaptive, um, and it catches it. That's usually that's the direction it, it throws it in. Yep. So, I don't know if I don't know if vice vice orientation might help some, but yeah, it was an adaptive. So, yeah. The scariest but, part I've ever thrown. I was doing the like the blue tape super glue method, and the tool pulled the it pulled the part up off. But the tool didn't break immediately, and it just started spinning up the part really fast, like around the tool. And then the tool broke, and the piece went flying back, and it um, ripped a hole through my way covers and like dented my ways. So oh like, my! Oh, that 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 was a little terrifying. I had that one on video somewhere too. It makes a really satisfying sound. <laughs> oh my goodness. 
Ugh. We need we need to keep keep better care of our machines. It sounds like we're all hard on our machines right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm. My poor little Tormach gets way more use than it was ever designed for. It was not designed to run 60, 70 hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad truth. We we all need to we all need to find people that have uh styles that they're getting rid of. Yeah. So we can join the club. Speaking of which, I have made a decision. So okay. I was looking for a long time at lathes. Uh, so we could make the pens and I have some other, you know, round based products that I wanted to do. And the more I was looking into it and it was basically like, I don't know. One of the thought processes that led me here is that like, if I get a lathe that doesn't have a C axis and live tooling, then it's just going to put more load on my mill and my mill is maxed out right now. Um, and that like, you know, basically makes the laser looking at a bunch more expensive and yada, yada, yada. And my, my conclusion was I don't need a lathe right now. I need a mill. And so I'm back to looking at mills. And right now I am basically ready to pull the trigger on a uh, X5, I think. I think I'm going to go the X5 over the X7 because I can get two of them in here um, pretty easily. I could probably get two X7s, but it would be crowded. But I could get two X5s uh, and potentially a lathe in here. And I confirmed it fits through my door. So... We should be able to get an X5. Um, I I basically am ready to get one now. I think I'm going to wait until after the next Kickstarter. Um, mostly because I want to see if uh, once the carabiner production is done, if my mill has free time or not. Because I may, I may not need it quite yet. I may be able to push it off another six months once I'm done with the current Kickstarter. But I'm... That X5 is looking really nice right now. Yeah. I, I think you'll get more use out of a second spindle than a lathe, at least yeah. with your current product lineup. Uh, especially if I introduce the um, the pocket knife, which, ooh, Scott and I made an executive decision. The pocket knife is not going to be a Kickstarter. The pocket knife is going to be just a regular product, uh, at least for now. We will probably do a... Um, future version that has some extra bells and whistles that will be a kickstarter the first one is just going to be a, just a knife the kickstarter version will be a multi-tool but which, which brings up an interesting question uh benjamin have you ever done a kickstarter i i haven't really followed any of your products but were they all launched on kickstarter or or like how did you bring them into the world and, and, and more generally them to the world? how do you sell things like, how yes. are you selling things right now? What's your marketing? Yeah, I actually, uh, I talked to Alex several years ago, actually, about doing a Kickstarter for my wallets, which these were the ones I was making on the CNC router with no ATC. Basically, you push a button, pushes everything up, and then also locks it all in place. And I thought it was really cool at the time. Uh, there's a bunch out there now, so it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but basically... I decided that a Kickstarter was not the right approach for me uh, after talking with him because I, I had a full-time job. I had a baby on the way, or I think maybe my, my son was already born. Uh, so that added, you know, a level of complexity to it. And I could barely make like 30 in two months. So to do a Kickstarter, I would either 
had to have found somebody that could produce these for me. I mean, it's like way down. Oh, there, well, yeah, there's the right in the middle there. Yeah, Atlas Vault. There it is. So, yeah, that's basically it. It was a pre-anodized aluminum um, piece. Yeah, uh, I think 16th of an inch or something. And I machined that so it was all black and looked really cool. And then I also offered them in Kydex, which is flexible but doesn't, like, snap. So it's a little bit, feels a little bit nicer in your pocket. And I was thinking about bringing them back. So one of those posts with the slots in it, uh, that's, like, version 2. And that would be more or less made for, like, a much more automated process with, like, ATC more of a unibody design. Um, but there's there's a lot of work that goes into those, and uh, I haven't brought them back. But anyway, so I didn't do a Kickstarter. But my Instagram has basically just been growing for the past three to four years. I had a crazy amount of growth right before Instagram like started Reels, I think is what it was. And I think they maybe changed their algorithm. It was like a hundred people or a hundred followers like a day. Like I would just get these notifications. I'm like, what in the world? It was when I was building my DIY CNC machine, which I think everybody was like really interested in and like super invested in because it was a really interesting thing. Um, so anyway, I gained a lot of followers. I think I have maybe around 12,000 followers, which is decent. And I realized Instagram is not going to help me out with sales or even showing my content to the people that want to see it. So I created a email list uh, with with the you know help and suggestions of others on Instagram. And basically it's like an email drop list. So when I am ready to uh, release a couple of knives, say maybe like 10 at a time, I will email that uh, that list of people send out like a quick little email that will alert everybody hey this saturday at 1 p.m and it's really fun for me because then i'm not doing any sort of pre-order which adds a level of uh just like it's almost intimidating for me to take people's money and then have to deliver on a certain date and what i really like about the drops what i do with my knives is i would just make what i wanted to make and just have fun and then I would put them up for sale and see if they would, would sell. And what's been really fun is they would always sell out like in a day or two. Uh, so that's how I'm marketing. I was doing a lot of stuff on Etsy. And then I realized Etsy is taking a huge chunk. And they're not doing anything for me. Because if I looked at my analytics, basically everybody is coming from my, my Instagram. So Etsy isn't really doing anything for me. So I don't need to pay them, you know, those extra fees to kind of like show my products to people. Uh, so I actually just switched to Square Up. Uh, my friend suggested that. And they take, I think, like 3% of uh, each sale. And I think Etsy is like, after it's all said and done, it's like close to 15%. So that's my Square Up website that uh, they have up there. So, but yeah, basically... It's really organic, I guess you could say. It just kind of happens. People DM me, and I'll be like, get on the email list. I'm not sure when I'm going to have them. Uh, 
And I know that that probably frustrates some people, but it's what works right now for me because I've got a full-time job, a family, uh, you know, this, this is a hobby. I know it doesn't look like it. And eventually I would love for it to be something, uh, similar to, you know, a full-time job or something, but right now that's how it goes. So that's a long way of saying I don't do marketing and I do a lot of drops just on Instagram. So. What, what's what's a typical drop size? Like 10. <laughs> Which I know that's not a lot, but especially the flips, they would take a very long time to make. So 10 felt like a lot for me. And about how long would it take? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, are you selling towards like the traditional knife market or who is your buyer? Is it like the traditional knife market kind of buyer? Is it like machinist? Is it just normal EDC people? Like where does your normal audience tend to look? That's a great question. I think it's people who have followed me for a while and have really enjoyed seeing the process of everything that I've put into iterating on the design over and over again, not really being happy with the way it locks up, the way it feels, the way it looks. And then I think also some people just like EDC stuff and it's a unique knife. I think utility knives are uh, super unique because like you can customize them very simply. You don't have to worry about carrying one and going into a place. You can just like throw the knife away. Uh, so it's, I'm not really sure what my market is, but I've noticed the people who reply back to me, uh, either with like positive feedback or something like that, they'll, I can get like an idea of like what they're buying it for. Uh, about how long does it take you to make uh, like about how often do you do a drop? You said you do about a drop of a size of about 10. About uh, how often the do you flips, do one? Because they took so long and were so time consuming to make. I would say probably about a four month stint. And most people really liked what I was making, but they couldn't afford it. Uh, I did a oh, titanium wow. one that was like close to $200. I think it was a really, really cool utility knife, but most people can't you know, spend that or even over a hundred dollars on, on a knife, uh, a utility knife that you can pick up at Home Depot or something. So that's why I actually started designing the slide. It has a lot less, um, machining on it and it's a lot easier to assemble. And that's like more of the 65 to $70 range. I wouldn't say that your price market is necessarily too high. When you look at like high end items, I mean, we'll just use our favorite uh, YouTube, Instagram knife maker that everyone knows, you know, Grimsmo. I mean, he makes thousand dollar knives and he can't keep any of them in stock. So um, it, looking by that market, if you can, if you have some, a product that's quality, that has a price that's justified that people will pay um, then selling a $200 utility knife um, is probably going to be a really easy thing to do. People just have to see the value in it um, 
that makes it worth that. Yeah. I think. Um, and but it's a lot easier to do that with a, with a lower dollar price. It's a lot easier to to get someone to take a chance on a lower dollar price. And as you build up a reputation and grow, you'll be able to raise your price, uh, you know, in tandem with that as people see quality and and feel like it's worth yeah, more. Absolutely. So. I, so I'm working on designing a knife now. And by working on it, I mean, I've tinkered a little bit with the design. I'm still basically in the roll around the idea in my brain phase. And I've done some, like, I did my very first kind of concept 3D model the other day. So, like, it's starting to become reality. But the, the way that I do products is I generally start with the price point and then work backwards to the product. And I'm still not quite sure where I want that to be on this knife. Um, I know for a lot of my audience, the thirty to fifty dollar range is basically the impulse buy range for my for my market. And so I try to keep things in there, but I don't think I can do a knife profitably in that range. So I'm probably going to be somewhere more, kind of in your same price point of like sixty, seventy, eighty bucks. Um, are, are you wanting to actually make a knife blade at that price point? Or are you still kind of looking at the utility knife route? Yep, I'm making the knife blades at that point. Um, my my goal is for it to be basically a competitor to like a Swiss Army knife. This first one is just going to be a small slip joint knife. But I'm going to, uh, when we do the Kickstarter later, add in the ability to have some extra tools in there. I thought you said you weren't going to do a Kickstarter for this one. Um, not right away. So we may do one later. The first knife we're going to launch is going to be just a simple slip joint. But then later we'll do a Kickstarter for a, um, a more of a multi-tool. Okay. I'm following. It probably won't have a huge amount of tools. It'll probably be like two or three tools total. But... This is funny to hear from the guy who didn't want to add a bottle opener or any other utility to any of his other products because he wanted them to be single use. Single and now he's going to make like a Swiss army knife. <clears throat> I, I don't know. I think a Swiss army knife is a single use thing. <laughs> like it's a single use multi-tool. <laughs> a single use multi-tool. Yeah. <laughs> one and done. All right. I've used it once. <laughs> Time to get another one. Yeah. Uh, but the blade funny. will be a whole adventure with those. Um, I and kind of, I don't know. The utility blade makes a whole lot of sense for a huge number of reasons. The biggest one being when it gets dull, you can just swap them out. And one of the biggest problems that non-knife people have with knives is the knives get dull and they don't know how to sharpen them or they're afraid to sharpen them. And so I'm basically designing this whole knife around the idea that it, is easy to sharpen like that is the 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 driving characteristic of this knife um and then i'm going to ship a sharpening something a sharpening stone or a little sharpening block with it so the people won't be afraid to sharpen it so i guess that brings up the question for for you benjamin is that the reason you went with the utility knife is uh, you didn't either want the challenge of making your own blade or do you like the interchangeability of the utility uh, knife? yes and yes <laughs> uh basically 
I did not want to mess with like heat treating, uh, hard milling, all that stuff for like my first product. And I just wanted, I wanted to carry a knife on me. And so I came up with just like a utility knife. But then as I used it, I realized like how useful it was just to have a throwaway blade. Um, and you know, you can customize it, get different blades. Uh, some blades are better than others. I've, I now sell all of mine with these cool like black coated blades and they're supposed to be sharper. Um, they might be a little bit sharper, but it doesn't matter. It's just a throwaway cheap blade. So yeah, I basically didn't want to go down the rabbit hole of like actual knife making because I didn't have that. Um, I didn't have like an oven. I didn't have heat treating all that set up. And so this was like the easiest way to like make something uh, that cuts. <laughs> So on, on a completely, uh, seems how you were brought up heat treating. Um, I will say we did get a hot shot oven Ooh. last week on Friday. Nice. What, what did so, you get it New for? purchase. Huh? What did you get it for other than fun? <sighs> we got it because um, that product that we've been making for uh, the muzzle device we've been making mm. for uh, another customer um, we've been using the, the university that I teach part-time at has a hotshot oven. And I've been basically taking about half a day to a full day once a week to go out and heat treat a bunch of stuff. And it's, we're getting too busy and, um, I can't be away from the shop that long. And, um, the volume that we're trying to reach with the, um, Basically, it all worked out to where it was basically going to pay for itself in the time saved, and then we'd have a hot shot oven. And so we just pulled the trigger on it, got it, and we've used it for the first time today. So it was amazing. And um, I'm going to be probably using that a lot. Um, and if we ever do decide, because seems how the topic seems to be is uh, knives, um, we've wanted to make one too at some point. Um, and so having an oven, being able to play around with it, um, it's just, a another, another, um, tool that we could maybe use at some point if we ever decide to go down that route. Um, but also if we ever do any machining and we need to harden stuff or anneal stuff, um, we'll have that option too now. And so I'm looking forward to, cause there's definitely been some stuff that we've wanted to buy and you can't find it hard or you can't find it annealed and, being able to do some of that now um, will hopefully be pretty nice. So we'll see. But just kind of funny because <laughs> we just got one. So <laughs> random material science question. I, for a long time have had some blocks of aluminum in the bottom of my powder coat oven to act as like a thermal mass. Uh, mm -hmm. so that when you open and close the door, you don't lose as much heat and yada, 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 yada. Well, you lose the same amount of heat, but then there's more mass to help heat the oven back up again. We recently upgraded our oven. And so we now have a convection powder coat oven. We have a fan on the bottom of it. 
And that thermal mass has become a whole lot less necessary because we can get the heat from the, the coil at the bottom up to the top really quick. And it's just much more even in temperature. That aluminum has been sitting at like 400 degrees for like a thousand hours. Have we ruined the temper on that aluminum? Because you soak aluminum for to, to harden it. Have we, have we hardened aluminum? Have we made it brittle? Can I put that back in my scrap bin or should I just get rid of it? Uh, how big of a material are we talking? And what would you use it for? It's a bunch I, of pieces I would... that are like um, three inches wide by six inches long and a half inch or three quarter inch thick. I probably wouldn't make customers parts out of it, but I would I would probably use them for uh, fixturing or anything else. Like I wouldn't say it's bad material, but I probably wouldn't sell it with a product material. You think I've actually hardened it though? Like, um, what do they call that? It's not uh, like aged. They, yeah, it's like aged aluminum. I, I imagine you have done that. Uh, to what extent? I have no idea because while I do understand material properties, I am like very ignorant <laughs> yeah. to like what it actually takes to do some of that stuff. You're you're um, the college professor here. Uh, yeah, but I'm college professor for CNC machining. There was no, <laughs> there was no heating up of of stuff in that. I, I had to look up how to, how to, so. I guess I'll get into a little bit of the of the stuff I do know about heat treating materials at this point. Um, so one of the biggest reasons I needed an oven like this is because the material that we are getting, um the spring material we're getting for this. Cause there's a, there's a little spring at the back of this muzzle pe- of this muzzle um, add on. Um, you can only get it. I can only find it in hardened mm-hmm. and I have to bend it. And the tight radiuses that I have to bend it in because it's so hard, it'll just snap. And so you have to anneal it to be able to bend it into the shape. And then I have to be able to reharden it to hold that shape. Uh, because when it's annealed, it becomes so soft that it doesn't act like a spring. So I'm basically having to, and also while it's hardened, if I try to cut it into pieces, it chips all of the, um, all of the shears that I try to use. It just destroys shears in its hardened state. And so I have to anneal it so then I can cut it and then I can bend it. And then I got to heat treat it. Uh, But when I harden it, it becomes so hard that it becomes brittle and it'll, it'll, snap on the first use and so then i have to temper it back to give it back its spring so i'm like taking something that's like a perfectly good spring and having to bring it through the whole cycle so i can get it into the shape and where i need it to be and that's Uh, that's actually a lot of fun is this 1095 um i believe it's 1095 okay it's like 1095 or 10 1091 something like that there's a couple in that range. We we played this game at my last job um, where we had a part they were making, spring steel out of 1095. Uh, we got it in the, the blue temper, which basically means full, hard, and springy. Mm-hmm. And we did one batch of these little spring clips. They were to hold credit card readers for, I think, Walmart. Um, but the, the first batch went fine, no problem. Second batch, every single one cracked on us whenever we went to form it. Uh, it ended up being a grain direction thing, but we went through this whole process of like trying to figure out heat treat and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. That was, I've, I've, I've been through all that. 
I've been there. Yeah. So we're, we're having a fun time figuring it all out. Um, I do need to figure out how to anneal these back because um, my first, and this might, it might be a grain direction thing and it might be a, a temper thing. I'm not sure which it is. Um, but the first batch of, of material that I got, I got in a 25 foot roll and then six months or not six months later. Uh, well, it might've been six months because we were doing the testing with that first spool and you could only, the smallest spool I could get it in was 25 feet. So I think it, I think it might've been six months between that and then full production, but for full production, I got a hundred foot roll cause I ran out of the 25 and for the, for the 25 foot roll, I would snap a spring, maybe one out of, uh, 30, one in 30. I'd have a spring that would fail when I tried to bend it. Um, but the hundred foot material, I had about a one in five or one in 10 that would snap. It was like double or triple, um, the rejection rate. And my theory is that I just, because it was so much more mass, I didn't anneal it enough. Um, because I did test and I did try to re-anneal it with just a, a flame. And um, that that seemed to help. Uh, what, what color did you anneal it to? Um, or temperate, I guess it, is the word we're looking for here. Yeah, temperate. I, I would go to a very, very, very light uh or uh, just a, just a like a very barely visible orange. Um, oh, so it's okay. probably so it's probably around, it, huh? I would have brought it to like a blue. That's normally where springs sit is a, a blue temper. Yeah. Well, this was this. I was trying to anneal. I was trying to make it soft, and so I think it was probably around a thousand to eleven hundred degrees. Think. Okay, that should be hot enough. That shouldn't give you a straw, though. That should give you like a like a dark brown or something. Oh, uh, oh, I thought. Oh no, it wasn't. Um, I thought you were talking about like what was under the heat. No, when you um, did the temper cycle. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. When it came out, it was like a straw color. Okay, I would have gone to blue. Um, it was blue from the factory. It was factory blue. Yeah, they, they... but it was it was way too hard. <laughs> even as a blue. spring oh like yeah when you reformed it back into the spring it was still too hard okay oh no 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 no, no. just too hard um no i take it to a straw color so i could i could bend it and form it and then once i was done after that um well i don't know what color it was because uh i don't have anything to protect it from oxiding so it's just black <laughs> right now so then it might be soft yeah, because the no. um, the temper colors happen before it starts turning black. Well, they're they're black because I'm dipping them in oil, and they're just and they're in open atmosphere, open air. So like, so what I'm doing? Okay, you're gonna make me go through the whole cycle. Um, the first thing I was doing was I was taking them all the way up to. I think it was around 1400 degrees and then I was slowly cooling them down to anneal them. So it was a slow cool down to, to kind of relax them and to get them as soft as I could. Um, I didn't have it programmed in there to, to cool slowly. 
So what I did on with both sets of, of both spools is I heated them up to about 1400. I let them sit there for a little bit. And then I just pulled them out and set them on the concrete and tried to um, do the best I could to um, allow them to cool down slowly. And then for the, when I tried to retemper or when I tried to reheat treat them, I took them back up to 1400 degrees. And then once they were there, I would drop them in water and I would water quench them. And then that made them way too hard. And then after that, I, uh, I would uh, take them up to about a thousand degrees and then let them slow cool. And that would temper them back. And that's about where I'm at. So two, two, two times at 1400, one is a quench and one is a slow cool. And then um, one time at a thousand to temper. So, you know, Benjamin, I think you're, uh, your internet's a lot better now. Like you're a lot clearer and I, I don't, is there, I wonder if there's as much a delay. Yep, not, not this time. Not yet. No, no, yeah. but our, my, we're getting close. Your, your, the way you sound and your video is so much clearer. Yeah. I don't know what you did, but it's a lot better. Okay. Oh, that would have been nice to have a while ago, but this works. Yeah, like you would be telling something like, like you know, you made like your batches were. Uh, 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 <laughs> it, 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 and I was like, oh, how big were they? Like, what, what size is this? <laughs> There's a little bit of smile and nodding on here, but it'll all come across really well in the podcast, thanks to to Zencaster, as long yeah. as Zencaster lets us export it correctly, which is kind of a crapshoot at this point, but um, anyway, we've gotten to meta talk about the podcast that we're podcasting right now. So shall we wrap up? That's awesome. Oh, <laughs> this is, this is the Harrison do the outro music. So, um, <laughs> which sometimes people can hear and sometimes they can't. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to thank you guys for uh, hanging, hanging out with us this evening. And uh, as we hang out here with Ben, uh, or Benjamin from Black Fox Machining. Ben, we want to thank you for coming on the podcast and telling us a little bit about your story. Um, I know it's been a ton of fun to follow you and see the stuff that you got going on. So uh, I hope to see many, many big things and many more things come out. And then maybe one day you can follow in the trend of quitting a perfectly good job to take on a job that doesn't pay uh, <laughs> and start making things online and selling them. <laughs> You have much better equipment than I do right now. So if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we appreciate having you on. I, I love following your story. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep watching you. And uh, for the rest of you guys, uh, like, yeah, like, share, and follow. And this is Harrison with Precision Ingenuity signing out with AJ from Design the Everything and uh, Benjamin. We'll talk to you later. Bye.